Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. Or in the case of this episode, people that are living thousands of miles away from the coast that are doing some incredibly important conservation work. I am joined today by Lance Kittle, Chapter Development Manager for the Inland Ocean Coalition. And yes, I said Inland Ocean, and you'll see what I mean soon enough. Lance also custom builds fly fishing rods, has an adventure channel on YouTube, and is an all-around interesting guy. Lance, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us today. Hey, Jenna. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you. So I want to start off by getting to know you a little bit better. So can we just start with where did you grow up and do you think your experience in that place influenced your love of the outdoors? Absolutely. So I actually grew up in Broomfield, Colorado, which is kind of in between Boulder and Denver, right along the Front Range Mountains. And I grew up in suburbia, funny enough. I really didn't have access to a lot of wilderness, but being a kid, you know, we made up what we could. And so we would always go down to the local park and there was a creek running through. So we would sit around catching crayfish and just listening to the animals, enjoying being outside and while nowadays I'm definitely a little bit more close to a lot of wilderness areas, um, my childhood definitely inspired a lot of my exploration and uh, just questioning about the world around me and wanting to understand more about natural landscapes, whether it be the mountains, which I'm most familiar with, or the ocean, which is a very close second at this point. That doesn't sound too different from my experience growing up. So I spent a number of years moving around. My my dad was in the Coast Guard, but when we eventually settled down to get a little more stability, um, we ended up in Maine. And we were just outside of Portland, Maine, so we weren't in that super wildernessy side of it like a lot of people think about when they think about Maine or Colorado. Um, but it was like close enough that I could have those experiences where I connect with the outdoors and um, get a chance to be curious, like you said. And I really think that I look back and cite some of those moments as really formative to who I am now um, in trying to pursue this conservation career. Right. Yeah. Having that connection, it doesn't have to stem from these grandiose places that always take your breath away. They can come from the smallest moments just from walking your dog through the park and hearing a bird that doesn't sound familiar, right? Or participating in local events that really bring you closer to what's actually right in front of you. It's amazing how we can form those connections, no matter what the scenario is. And I think those should be really treasured. Yeah, for sure. It's it's almost like a practice in mindfulness and being present in the moment and seeing no matter where you are, there's there's always an opportunity to learn and something to be curious about. <laughs> and uh, a, a common trait that I've noticed about people that work in this space is that many of us tend to be very purpose-driven and find fulfillment in doing what we love, even if that path is uh, uphill or challenging and maybe doesn't pay enough or pay anything at all sometimes. So <laughs> I'm wondering what drives you and what are some of your life's greatest passions? So I like to think about, you know, the purpose of my drive stemming from my love for just being outdoors. And I really like to channel that into a passion driven life. And the way that I like to frame all of this is I, I take what's important to me and it's those moments where I'm outside and there's no sound of traffic and there's no disturbance other than the connection that I'm sharing with the world around me. And I like to try to instill that in everybody that I meet, really, um, whether it be in my career or whether it be in my personal life. I really do believe that having those moments of stillness in a truly beautiful place, whatever that means to you, 
can really have a lasting impact on the way you view the world. And so one of my greatest passions is being able to provide a way for people to see how beautiful life can actually be. Um, it's kind of a, a big, you know, large scale frame that I like to look through, but it really does mean a lot. And instilling these little moments into people, whether they be professional or personal, always has a great return benefit because you're providing something for someone and you get to see their reaction to this change of of view and this change of belief eventually. So, so I guess, you know, to sum it up, my, my greatest passion is to instill passion in the people around me as well. I think that's such a rewarding thing too. And a great way to look at it is, um, you know, and I've noticed this in my personal life as well, where, um, you start to see your own community start to look at, challenges. I mean, in this frame, in this conversation, I'm specifically thinking about conservation and sustainability, but, you know, there are definitely people in my circles and in my family. I mean, most of them don't do conservation work, but you don't have to in order to make a difference in the world or to improve your own mindset and, you know, work on yourself to be healthy and your own communities and your own circles to be healthy and happy um, and doing what you love. And I think, that is definitely the biggest reward for me. And what I do is seeing how it's impacting the people that I hold close to me and how it sort of ripples out um, into everybody that I know in terms of just being mindful of their their place in the world and their role in the world and how that they can bring a little good to it. Right, exactly. And being able to expand from oneself into your community is one of the most powerful tools we as conservationists have at our in our toolkit right is is looking at your community as a segmented population the best way to do it or how can we find those common threads and how can we instill those threads of connectivity to grow and be more strong than the threads that separate us i really love the idea of connecting community to individual to the world around us. And it's almost like this trifecta of, of power that we really are able to tap into. Yeah, especially in a world where we have a lot of issues that we're faced with that seem insurmountable and huge. And, you know, where do you even start? You know, as an individual, how am I going to solve climate change? And um, taking that moment to consider what you can do as an individual and realizing your own power that you have to impact your community and spread some kindness and spread some good and take care of, you know, everything that is in your control. I think it is pretty amazing to see what happens when you have a large group of people realizing, oh, I can just take care of my own community right here at home. And then you start to see how that will then move outward and start impacting the greater scheme of climate change. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love the idea of thinking locally and acting globally. I, it's really mm -hmm. resonated me with me for years because the more you see smaller communities come together to address pertinent issues in that community, the more you see out, outer communities looking at that specific community for answers or guidance as to how to address maybe a similar issue within their own realm too. And, and having this growth of knowledge has really impacted not only local communities, but global communities as well. We see this scalability starting to take form. And it's so cool to see because everybody's putting in their different efforts to grow this idea. And the more those efforts are put in, the more we know about the world and the more flexible we can act in our um, changes that we want to, to put in place. Yeah. And at the risk of sounding super cheesy, you know, it's it's definitely getting back to like, be the change you want to see in the world. Right. And um, I think one of my favorite things about hosting this show is offering a glimpse into someone else's life and experiences in the world and demonstrating the human behind the conservation work, because I think we all can learn so much from each other. And um, I'm wondering if 
you can share more about you know, what is it like to be you and what is this Lance Kittle experience um, other than, you know, maybe the name of your best of Spotify playlist should you ever be in a super <laughs> successful band someday? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate to have a pretty wide breadth of experience from uh, both local communities and different parts throughout the world. So when I was in my early 20s, uh, I did the typical backpack Southeast Asia and go and travel in between semesters and university, which was honestly one of the most eye-opening experiences that I've really ever done. Um, I made my way through Central America. I went to Southeast Asia and visited some countries there. And it really gave me this awesome perspective that I'm able to carry on in my daily life. Um, and, and I guess speaking of daily life, you know, in my role as chapter development manager for Inland Ocean Coalition, I am uh, I serve as the point of contact for our 15 chapters throughout the entire United States. And I'm also entertaining some inquiries from uh, international uh, entities as well, which is great. We're not quite ready to take those on uh, fully, but it's always great to see the community that we're working with continued to grow, like we mentioned earlier, right? So, so I get to talk with a lot of people and I get to understand perspectives that aren't right in front of my face, but I can hear the passion from everybody that I talk to. You know, conservation is not a field you get into to make a bunch of money. We all know that, right? So at this <laughs> point, what are we doing this for? And I really think it's for that connectivity. And being able to call up some of our chapters on the East Coast and then relaying information to the West Coast, it's just so cool. I'm in the perfect spot right here in Colorado to kind of serve as the middleman sometimes. But but really, my, my entire day, my entire philosophy is based around growing community, growing the passion that can be found in others, realizing that the world is already a beautiful place and we don't have to do anything to it to make it any more beautiful. And finally, just really reinforcing the connection that humans have with our environment, uh, whatever environment that may be. There's always beauty and there's always something new to be seen. So that's kind of my daily, you know, I, I like to I like to look at the big scale and I like to focus in on some small details that that just prove how awesome the world truly is to be in. Yeah. And yeah, I know you you touched on your philosophy a little bit, um, but something I would love to hear a little more about and your opinion on is is what is your approach or your philosophy to conservation and sustainability? And what does that mean to you? So I ask this because I think everyone approaches sustainability and conservation a little bit differently. And I think that these things can look very different depending on where you live in the world and what your life experiences are. So I would love to dive into your opinion on that a, a little bit deeper. I would love to speak on it. And really my my like the backbone behind the passion and what's kind of the catalyst between ideas and bringing them to fruition in terms of conservation and sustainability is being able to exercise your creativity to the fullest extent there's really never been a time in human history where we've had to focus so intently on conservation and sustainability practices so there's not really a rule book that's been made up and there's no how to do this, how to do that. And that is such a blessing for all of us because we get to explore and investigate some of these new tools and new tactics that are presented to us. And while something may work in the United States, it may not work in South America or another country, right? So we take these ideas, we scale them and we frame them using our creative process to fit what is going to have the most impact and most influence on our specific community. So, so my approach is definitely emphasizing and exercising creativity to the fullest extent. And I think the philosophy that's behind that is these are uncharted waters. Um, this is not, not something that anybody else has done before, and we should do it in the most fun and engaging way possible. So, not trying to focus on the doom and gloom that sometimes comes out of this field, but rather focus on 
the really, really cool ideas that come out of some groups and how we can turn that into an idea which forms into a movement which eventually gains traction on the global scale. Um, so coupling both of those aspects is, is really kind of my approach and philosophy to how we can achieve the next step in conservation and sustainability. I really appreciate that viewpoint so much and weaving creativity into the work that we're all doing relating to conservation and sustainability, I think is so important. And, you know, I feel very fortunate to have this platform where I get to speak to some really bright minds and some really interesting people that are doing great work all over the world. And a common thread that I see through these discussions is it almost sounds like when, when people are talking about how they got into the field and the work that they're doing and what drives them, it almost sounds like when you hear interviews with like rock stars and artists, it's there's like something that lives within you that will not be muted and needs to be expressed outwardly. And I think that there is something that is innately creative about finding yourself in this conservation space for that exact reason that you mentioned is that this is really uncharted territory. Um, we uh, have a, a massive complex problem that we're taking on. And there, I don't think that there is one answer for how to solve it. We need to be approaching this in many different ways, large and small. And that is going to take a great deal of creativity for us to be able to address these challenges and overcome them. Um, and this is a, it's like almost like a call to creative minds that are out there listening to this, that if you aren't working in the sustainability space, I mean, you don't even need to be working for a nonprofit, a nonprofit in the classic sense. Um, there are so many different ways that you can approach uh, being sustainable, living sustainably um, and promoting conservation within your own communities. Um, and we are so open to any and all ideas because this is such a complex issue. So all of the creative minds out there, um, you know, we appreciate the differing viewpoints and we, we need you on board. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, I, I have to give my hat off to uh, my graduate program at Western Colorado University, the Master in Environmental Management courses that I took. The entire program never really focused on one specific person or type of person being admitted to the program. So I was in grad school studying environmental management with people who graduated with communications degrees. And a lot of these degrees added that extra creative interjection into the way that I would come to conclusions or the way that I was preparing reports. It was so cool to have those outside voices with influence uh, kind of guiding me through some of these thought processes to be able to understand that sometimes we actually have no idea what we're doing, but the best course of action is to just give it a try. Yes. And I, I love that you brought that up because it, that is also how I learned successfully as well. And my my grad program, we went to different programs, but it sounds like they approach the problem in similar ways. And I'd be interested to see if that style of, of teaching and learning is taking off um, more in these environmental programs. So I went to Virginia Tech's, um, it's their executive master's in natural resources program, but they did a similar thing where they brought in all different people from different generations, all different kinds of backgrounds and working in different sectors. And then we, instead of like a classic course schedule, we, um, we served almost as like consultants for people in the real world world that needed um, advice on certain problems. And it was such an incredible and eye-opening experience for me as someone that had initially been approaching it from, you know, I'm going into this conservation space and I'm going to be like, you know, it was like almost siloed. And to have my eyes opened to this is a global issue that we're facing. It has no borders, no boundaries, and the people working on it don't need to have borders or boundaries as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat, too, because I did my, my bachelor's degree in environmental biology. And so there's definitely a methodology and a scientific method that's involved with that. Even if you are trying to flex your creative muscles, there's still a little bit of guidance 
into how you can go about completing the scientific method. And when I hit grad school, they basically threw all that out and they were like, no, don't think about anything in that way because you're limiting yourself to one thought process or one path to a conclusion. When in reality, the topic of sustainability and conservation, like you said, is so nuanced that we have to maintain that flexibility and give credibility to the unknown because we don't know what it is until we've tapped into it and approached it from several different angles to really kind of get a grasp on the actual issue at hand. Yeah, exactly. And I, I want to pivot a little bit because I've heard you mention some really interesting places that you've traveled to. And then additionally, you live in Colorado. So that's amazing. And I, I love that state. It's so beautiful, especially if you're out, outdoorsy, as I'm sure all of our listeners know. Um, but I would love to hear a little bit more about what are your favorite ways to connect with the outdoors? And do you have any favorite places? And, and if you do, why do you hold those places so close to your heart? Yeah. So outdoor recreation is what it, I don't even know how to describe it. It's that, it's that unspoken bond that I have. Right. So I'm, I'll, I'll rewind a little bit though. Um, I'm an avid fly fisher. Uh, along with my wife. And so during the summertime, we spend a lot of our days exploring meadows up in the Alpine, you know, fishing small streams for the tiniest trout you could find, right? We're not exactly <laughs> trophy fishers. We're more in it to have that connection and be able to relax a little bit and humble ourselves a little bit too. Um, so Colorado is definitely a blessing for our lifestyle. We love it out here. Um, outside of Colorado, yeah, I've, I've developed a really, really strong bond with Costa Rica, actually. I, I went there for the first time in 2015, uh, and since then I've been back eight times, actually. Um, <laughs> and the reason for that was because I actually, in my undergrad years, I took an internship at this sustainable treehouse community in the southern zone of Costa Rica called Finca Bella Vista. And... I wish I could, you know, paint pictures for you right now because Finca Bella Vista is, to me, the most magical place in the world. There, despite being back there eight times, I have seen more biodiversity and more honest connection between humans and the land there than I have any other place in the world. Um, I actually love it so much that I bought one of the tree houses there um, a couple of years ago. And it's a, it's a small cabina kind of thing, right? But we're 25 feet off the ground. And so we're in the canopy. Um, and some of the best days I've ever had have been spent on the balcony, listening to the toucans in the trees right next to the kitchen and just sipping some of the best coffee I've ever had. So it, it's really <laughs> That's interesting. so amazing. Oh, it is it's breathtaking. It really is. And, and I really do appreciate the fact that I can even have that connection. Um, being in Colorado all of my life, I definitely didn't really know what it was like to live in a place that didn't necessarily have seasons, but had more of a wet and dry season, right? So it's like, it's a polar opposite of what we kind of have here in Colorado. But in, in the same sense, it's, it's a place to revel in the wonder of the world and really being captured by how totally different any specific place in the world can be from another. So I'm, I'm so happy that I can have kind of this rounded out uh, picture of, you know, that's how I connect with the outdoors and that's how I take what I learn from the outdoors and bring it into my life and bring it into others' lives as well. Well, I thank you for sharing that because as I stand and where I stand up here in Boston in the depths of winter, <laughs> uh, you know, even though it's been fairly mild up here so far, so I really can't complain. But, um, you know, I think late February and March is generally a pretty big struggle for a lot of folks that live up here in New England. I think a lot of people take vacations. So I appreciate you giving me that like daydream fuel where <laughs> uh, if I'm if I'm needing to go somewhere warm in my mind, I can now pull up uh, for listeners. There are there's a really great video um, 
that Lance, maybe you can guide people on how to find that video mm -hmm. um, for people who want to see what this place looks like, because it is truly magical. Um, and now I'm already trying to figure out how I can go down and visit because it's, it's a totally unbelievably beautiful place. <laughs> it really is. Um, if anyone does want to check it out, the YouTube video is called A Life Less Ordinary. And what it does is go into detail about the treehouse community, some of the amazing neighbors that I have, some of the really hard work that went into building a completely off-grid treehouse community in the center of the Costa Rican jungle. So it's got some great clips. It definitely outlines a little bit more of what the treehouse community is outside of just a bunch of homeowners with a similar idea. So definitely check it out if you have the chance. Yeah. And speaking of the outdoors and adventure and YouTube, I understand that you recently launched a YouTube adventure channel. What is this channel all about and how can people follow along? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought it up, actually. Um, so my wife, my dog and I, uh, our dog being the main star of the show, <laughs> um, <laughs> we just started a YouTube channel called The Dirt People. And so we... <laughs> You know, as I've speak, as I've spoken about how Colorado really does have that awesome tie with us, uh, we finally started to capture some of those memories and those moments that take our breath away, and we really wanted to be able to share it with uh, people who may not have the ability to do so. And we also really wanted to tie in conservation and sustainability, but in a really fun way. So we have kind of a schedule outlined and a lot of our videos are going to be shot at our property in uh, Pagosa Springs, Colorado. It's a small two and a half acre lot that has absolutely no utilities. It's a beat down to even get to, but it's going to be one of those places where we just kind of experiment and have fun with some of the techniques that uh, I've learned, whether it be in Costa Rica or Taos, New Mexico at the earth ships. Um, so, really just taking a little bit of my background in sustainable building and technology and putting it to our own use, which is really cool. Um, we're also going to be exploring a lot of Colorado just by camping and fishing and trying to capture some of those natural moments just to, you know, if someone pulls it up during their lunch break and, you know, they, they don't have to listen to somebody yelling at them about all the camping gear that they brought along, this and that. We're, we're really <laughs> aiming for more of, you know, a very relaxed and mellow channel, which shows some beautiful scenery, shows us kind of doing what we love to do, and hopefully it'll inspire others to do the same. Um, but we aren't completely void of like the gear reviews and stuff like that. Like this weekend, we're filming an episode where we make... Um, coffee cake in a solar oven. So we're really looking forward to that. And we go into an in-depth review of the products we use and how to best use some of these alternative solutions to some of, you know, modern days, typical amenities. Um, so it's going to oh, be, man. yeah, it's, a, I am <laughs> sorry. I'm like drooling over here. I am, I am a big I'm really big into cooking and baking and I'm just mm -hmm. sitting here listening to you share about this. Like, Oh yes, I'm definitely <laughs> watching this episode and figuring out how I can make coffee cake when I am out in, you know, in the woods or camping and yes. um, just using solar power. I think that's Absolutely. amazing. I think that you, you all are taking an amazing approach at this with making it accessible, making it fun Harnessing the technology that we have in the, the you know, how popular social media is right now. Mm -hmm. um, and then, I mean, it doesn't hurt that you have a dog involved because I feel like <laughs> that will always get more eyes on anything that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I feel like three-fourths of the actual video that we capture is just us playing with our dog, you know, and we try to salvage some of the clips where we're like, oh, yeah, we actually did get a clip of this. But, but yeah, we're really looking forward <laughs> to just putting together an outdoor sustainability, you know, conservation type channel where it's not too informative. So it's not like sitting through a lecture, but it's really fun and engaging. Um, and and we, we really just want to share our lives because we are so happy with the way that we're able to live life and bringing a camera along is never a hard thing to do either. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I appreciate you all sharing and I look forward to following along. And then just as a reminder for the listeners, it's the dirt people. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. On YouTube. Yes. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. You know, I, w- I want to talk about our work a little bit more. And uh, we have a lot of young professionals that listen to this show or people that are thinking about pursuing a career in the conservation space. Mm -hmm. And I try to provide a little insight into how each of us got here. Um, So what was the process like for you with getting your foot in the door into this conservation world? So it really all started with that first trip to Costa Rica, actually. I was sitting in a swimming hole in the river And uh, one of my professors from Western was actually there as well. They were a part of a six-week program uh, that was helping to assist the community. And as I was sitting in this pool watching blue morpho butterflies lackadaisically fly by at this point, um, (laughs) my professor mentioned to me the Master's in Environmental Management program that I had mentioned earlier. And... uh, it didn't take much convincing for me to actually realize that conservation and sustainability, no matter what your background, is something you can definitely focus on. So I entered the grad program and for two years I studied global sustainability, uh, scalability, frameability from local to global like we've also mentioned. Uh, and then once I once I left grad school, I was I was almost like clueless as to what to actually do because You know, you're in school for seven years and all of a sudden there's no homework and there's no tests or anything to worry about. And so it freaks me out a little bit at first. I'm sure I'm not the only person that's felt that. But what I decided to do was tap into the knowledge that I got from school, both undergrad and graduate, and try to figure out how I was going to make a good name for myself and be involved in something that I also really, really cared about. So I was driving through Denver. This was about a year ago, just over a year ago. Um, I was driving home from a networking talk and it was actually raining, right? So rain in Colorado in January is not something that we're always used to, but you know, given the way that the world is working nowadays, it doesn't exactly catch us off guard. But I was watching the rain fall onto the highway and I was watching the water run into the storm drains. And I was thinking to myself, what what happens to water that falls in an inland state after it leaves Colorado or whatever state you're talking about? And I kept thinking to myself and I was like, you know what? I wonder if there's any ocean based organizations in Colorado. And so of course, being the, you know, resourceful grad student or post-grad student that I was (laughs) at the time, I took to Google my favorite tool in the world, and uh, I Googled Colorado Ocean Organizations. And the first one that popped up was the Inland Ocean Coalition, who I currently work for. 
And I jumped on their Facebook page, I checked out their YouTube, I looked at the website, and I was totally in love with what they were doing because they were taking these conservation ideas that are definitely inland-based and framing them in the sense of the ocean, right? So you would take your care for a watershed and you frame it as somebody who's from the coast instead of somebody who cares about fishing just as much as I do. <laughs> um, and so, so from there, you know, I, I saw a job posting a couple of weeks later and I'd still followed the organization really intently. And, and I think that's what really got me into the current position that I'm in is taking the, the passion for conservation and turning it into passion for a specific organization. I went above and beyond to get my foot in the door with the organization. Um, I met them at a uh, event they had in Boulder one night. I, I've really tried my hardest because I really, really wanted to be a part of this organization and what was going on. And that definitely helped. Um, but really what it all stemmed from was me not losing touch with my passion for conservation and my passion for wanting to do good in the world. So, so that's kind of how I got here. And I'm really excited for, you know, years down the road where I'll be able to say in five years or 10 years, what got me to that point. But, um, in, in reality, it's, it's just following what my heart was telling me to do. And I think that's why a lot of people get into this field in the first place, but uh, just staying true to your heart and really listening and being able to tap into the resources you have and change them around to fit what you need is how I went about really getting my my foot in the door in terms of conservation. Yeah, and I, I think that is a great way to do it. And, you know, following what your curiosities are and seeing where that path leads you. And it happened to lead you to the Inland Ocean Coalition, which, um, you know, for listeners through my day job with the Healthy Oceans Coalition if two organizations could be like best friends, I feel like <laughs> I feel like the Inland Ocean Coalition and the Healthy Oceans Coalition are besties. We we absolutely adore the Inland Ocean Coalition, and you know everybody that works for the Inland Ocean Coalition is just so bright and passionate, um, and just a pleasure to work with. And it's been really incredible to see the growth over the years. So it started as the Colorado Ocean Coalition. And now uh, you have, remind me how many chapters there are all over the country. Yeah, we're we're at 15 currently. And our goal is to be at 20 chapters by the end of 2020. Yes. Yeah, so if you're sitting in a landlocked state or really anywhere in the country, and this is interesting to you and you want to learn more, please look up the Inland Ocean Coalition there are ways for you to start your own chapters. You can plug into already existing chapters and the work that they are doing as a whole is just so important to spread the message of what you do, even if you're a thousand miles away from the coastline on land, will eventually work its way back out to the coast. And on the flip side of that, we're all impacted by the ocean, no matter how far away we live from it. Yeah, I, I think how you just said it is the perfect way to to really examine this idea because inland and ocean never have really had like the tightest connection. And that's kind of where we come in. We're trying to foster this this growth in communities in in terms of conservation of the ocean from land to sea. And it you know, we we've run into some some barriers in terms of that because it's such a new idea and it can be hard for people to resonate with that, but we have some awesome tools that we use to really foster that connection. And, uh, you know, despite having a, a name like Inland Ocean Coalition, we're really caring for everybody from, you know, the Pacific to the Atlantic and anyone in between. And I think from a branding perspective, you know, and I'm not sure if this was intentional or not, but over the years, just seeing how people interact with the Inland Ocean Coalition, I think it is like genius branding to name yourself Inland Ocean Coalition because it immediately sparks curiosity within people. Mm -hmm. It's something that a lot of people haven't heard before. Um, and that is like an initial in, you know, Inland Ocean Coalition. What does that mean? What is the Inland Ocean? There's no ocean here. And then, <laughs> you know, then you're off. You got them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, 
the idea is to get people to engage. And one of the best tools we have is our brand, especially with our chapters too, because each of our chapter, each of our chapters has their own kind of brand, right? And the things that they prefer to do under the name Inland Ocean Coalition, some of our chapters you know, focus on beach cleanups or creek cleanups. Uh, our per- perfect example is our Buffalo, New York chapter. Um, they, they're so engaged. And if you look, you know, across the country, our Montana chapter is really focused on some of the policy work that goes into identifying um, ocean conservation topics, being ready to support any movement that is, you know, aiming to promote ocean conservation. So, and there's just so many angles that we can go about it. Um, so, so our work is cut out for us, that's for sure. But we love every minute and being able to connect with other organizations like Healthy Oceans Coalition is just the icing on the cake, really. Yeah, and, and so I'm curious about, I mean, I'm sure that we could probably go on and on about this, but if you could summarize, you know, one thing or what is something that you would like people in inland and landlocked states to know about the role that they play in ocean health? Oh, that's a, it's a great question because just with conservation and sustainability, there's always a different issue that may be more pertinent to your area or to your community. But overall, I really think that the big issue that I would like to see um, being more of a point of conversation in inland communities is how communities down the waterway um, are affected by choices that are made up the waterway, right? So in Colorado, we're a headwaters state and a lot of our water is distributed throughout the United States. And one of the most interesting things that is always brought up whenever I mention Inland Ocean Coalition is why should I care about the water when it leaves Colorado? I've already gotten my use out of it. I've already, you know, I've used it. I've, I know that it goes to a water treatment facility. So isn't that water basically being turned back into the same water it was when it fell into the Rocky Mountains? And, and obviously the answer is no. Um, humans have a very intense anthropogenic effect on our waterways. And a lot, and by a lot, I mean a lot, a lot of waste (laughs) is actually found in our waterways. And say, you know, say you're on a boat in a lake in in Kansas, right? And you accidentally drop a can into the water and you, you really don't think too much about it, but the can is either going to end up in a landfill, which honestly would be a better fate for it than than the other aspect, which is, you know, the can is going to make its way into the ocean at some rate. And it's really hard to say what rate, because again, we have all of these factors that affect our waterways. But, but the big idea being the trash that we produce inland often ends up in the ocean, right? So we have a direct effect as an inland community on our ocean. And I really, really want people to understand that just because you're able to throw something out doesn't mean it goes away forever. I mean, this is kind of common knowledge, but the bigger part of that is so much of our waste ends up in the ocean every day. And if we're able to be responsible stewards in inland states, we can reduce the amount of trash that we're putting into the ocean and overall just try to increase the overall health of the ocean as well. Yeah. And uh, so for listeners that are interested after hearing Lance share about Inland Ocean Coalition and, and inland impacts on our ocean and the planet, um, there are a couple of different ways that you can learn more and get involved with the Inland Ocean Coalition and do your part um, to try to reduce some of that waste going into our rivers, streams, and lakes, and eventually making it out to our coastlines. Um, the first, I actually had the um, executive director of the Inland Ocean Coalition, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, on the podcast uh, back in the spring. We were all in Dallas at the EarthX conference. And so uh, Vicki dives a little bit more into the founding of the organization 
And this conversation is a reminder for me to have her back on because we <laughs> actually, our interview got cut short because I'm about to name drop here, but um, Senator Whitehouse walked into the room and uh, we were sharing the room with a few other podcasters and, uh, you know, he, he kind of took prioritize, uh, took priority of, of the space. So Vicky, I am sure you're going to listen to this episode. So I promise that I will have you back on shortly. Um, but then Lance, can you share how people can learn more about the organization and get involved? Absolutely. So we have, like I said, 15 chapters currently, um, and our chapters go from Alaska to Buffalo. So the best way that you could find a local chapter is to head to our website, which is inlandoceancoalition.org. And on our website, we list all of our chapters. And if there's not a chapter that's close to you, um, my contact button is right there on the same page. So you can always send me an email to get the conversation going. Um, I would love to see more chapters in more diverse areas as well. So there's not a place that I'll turn down. I love the conversation and I love being able to weed through some of the really awesome action items that your particular community could look into. Um, so yeah, heading over to the website or contacting me directly. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, all of the social media platforms. Um, so yeah, any of those outlets definitely work for getting in touch with us. Great. Yeah. So everyone go ahead and give them a follow and reach out to Lance if you're interested in maybe starting your own chapter and getting involved in their work. Um, so now, you know, thinking about things that we're passionate about and love to do, I've heard you mention fishing and mm -hmm. ideally finding a way to monetize the things that we love to do. <laughs> Will you tell me more about Pescavita and um, how, you know, what is in that name and how did this company come to fruition? Definitely. So Pescavita is kind of my first attempt at monetizing, like you said, a passion project. Um, so it was probably 20, 2016. Um, it was the dead of winter and I was living in Gunnison, Colorado, which is one of the coldest places <laughs> in the United States. Um, and I was just dreaming of the days spent in the summer going out and fishing. And uh, I'm sure any other angler who may be listening can definitely relate. You know, we get stir crazy in the winter time, And uh, so I was trying to find a new way to connect with fly fishing being one of my passions. And so I sat around on my desk at work, definitely YouTubing on the clock. I apologize to my old boss for that. But um, <laughs> I was looking up how to make a fly fishing rod and it, it it was such a funny idea to me because I'd fished for so many years and I'd never even thought about what it even takes to make a fly fishing rod. And so this is kind of where the idea started. Um, I, I chose the name Pescavita because it, it a very loose translation to fish life uh, in Spanish. And that's really kind of the guidance that has gone into the brand. It's It started out as me eventually learning to make a fly rod and then realizing I was kind of okay at it. And then mostly selling them just to my friends at, at first, but I started building the brand um, via social media and I was able to get a bunch of fly rods out across the country, even up to Canada, which was really cool. Um, and so from there, you know, I, I definitely love to build fly rods, but I wanted some more aspects to it. And I wanted to include a little bit of conservation because um, you know, our waterways are definitely in jeopardy. Um, some of these awesome outdoor recreational opportunities we have are also in jeopardy. So I wanted to be able to figure out a way to intertwine that. And then uh, finally, I wanted to bring the idea of fish life to a more lifestyle brand kind of level. Um, so we started designing apparel and we release the apparel on our website, which is pescavita.net. Um, we're always constantly cooking up new designs that kind of reflect uh, the fly fisherman's life or the fly fisherwoman's life. Um, and we also have branched out into doing monthly creek cleanups. They're typically on the front range in Colorado, but uh, we, we 
are planning on working with an organization that takes it to more of a statewide level. Uh, and it really, it's just been, it's been a lot of organic growth. Um, kind of the reason behind that is that I didn't want to make my hobby something that I didn't want to do, right? Like if you overwork yourself too much, you don't connect on the same level like you used to. Um, but fortunately, a lot of my friends have found that same kind of click with the brand and the, the idea, and they've been able to help bring some of their ideas to fruition under the brand name too. So we've got graphic designers, we've got people who are really interested in capturing media. Um, and it's just kind of like a team of people who are united under one, one central focus, which is fly fishing. But kind of going back to that creativity that I mentioned earlier, we're, we're all going about it from a different angle. And that's really opened up so many possibilities because I'm not limiting myself with just my perspective and my thought process, but I've got, you know, eight to nine other people who are involving their input into the brand and the idea as well. So it's, it's been so cool to see grow. It's been so cool to put a little bit more into it than just kind of what I had going for it. And uh, I love where, where it's growing. And where it's going too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but what has that process of starting a business been like for you? Like what kind of maybe unexpected lessons have come out of it that you could share for anybody listening that may be hoping to start their own business or brand someday? Yeah. Well, one of the biggest issues that I ran into was my understanding of the inf influence and impact of social media. Um, when you're first starting out, you, ha you have this grandiose idea of like, yeah, we're going to have millions of followers and everyone's going to be engaged and everyone's going to want our products. Um, and typically because social media is such a saturated platform, it really does take a lot of time and energy putting in the marketing hours and learning how to use these platforms to your advantage. Like I said, it took me two years to really build the platform to kind of where it's at now. And we still have so much more to do. Um, so, so the idea of, of really putting together a brand that stands out and addresses a certain problem or a certain area of focus is a little bit trickier <laughs> than I thought it was going to be. Um, and then, you know, obviously navigating the legal framework, that was something that I kind of um, didn't anticipate being what it is. It's definitely not the worst thing in the world, but, you know, a, a good background on how businesses operate definitely helps in that sense. I didn't really have all of that information. So, again, I took to Google and, and learned a lot about <laughs> really what goes into operating and maintaining a brand. Yeah, it's learning on the fly yeah. fishing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bad joke. I know, I love that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> um, so as we wrap up, I, uh, I, I've I started asking all of my guests the same series of questions. Um, because again, I just, I feel so fortunate to be able to have this show and take a moment to spend with all of these people that I admire and I think are doing really great things for the world. And so this is, um, you know, my last bit of trying to glean any insight that I can from you. Mm -hmm. And I've, I, it's turned into this like social experiment where I'm starting to see these, uh, common themes and like a narrative thread being woven through, mm -hmm. um, the responses to the, the last couple questions that I have. Um, but, uh, We'll start with what do you think is the most pressing challenge that we are faced with in terms of environmental challenges? I think the most pressing environmental challenge that we are currently faced with is the fact that conservation, sustainability, climate change, it's all a global issue and it's a global topic. Yet rarely do we actually find any commonalities between governments, between countries, between borders that are able to really focus on some of these issues in that in that way, right? Of having that global framework. And I, I really think it kind of comes down to 
I hate to say it, but the ego of conservation and, and environmental impact, right, is, you know, well, what we did over here works. And if you guys replicate it, it should probably work. You know, we need to not do that so much. We need to be more understanding. And, and more importantly, we need to understand that when we're wrong, it's not a bad thing and that we can reframe and refocus and a bump in the road shouldn't completely derail your train car. It should really give you motivation to smooth out some of those kinks in the future and, and even more so be able to prepare for them if they come up. But kind of going back to what I was saying, we really need to drop the, the idea that, you know, we are all right. And if we're not right, then we're absolutely wrong. And, you know, we, we have to flex that creative process, the creative muscles that go into this and really have some humility in approach, approaching some of these global climate and environmental issues. I would love to see, you know, our generation as we really gear up and ramp up in the coming years to have that humbleness and that humility instilled into the work that we do. And I, I think that this is an issue, but it's also a really big motivational factor for a lot of us too. Yeah, it, you know, it can be so easy to point fingers and place mm -hmm. blame on other people outside of yourself. And um, some of the most valuable lessons, you know, I can really only speak from my own experience, but some of the, the most valuable lessons I've learned in life have come out of failure. And there's so much fear around failure um, that it, it, it would be so amazing if we as a whole, as a globe, as a country, as a community can can embrace that fear and embrace mm -hmm. failure and and instead of looking at it as something shameful see it as a learning opportunity and, and a place where growth happens right and we have such an awesome opportunity to make sustainability and conservation the place to go if you don't want to be judged for the fear and failure aspects i mean none of us do any of this right all the time and a lot a lot of learning goes into all of our processes. So, you know, we, we do have this awesome opportunity to change the way that that science can can add to the conversation and also include a lot of other factors like the human factor, the environmental factor, the the social factor of a community. We we really got to tap into it and we really have to embrace it because that's going to really help accelerate us to some of those next steps. Yeah. And so something that I think you are harnessing really well is making sustainability and conservation and learning about these issues fun and interesting. Mm. And I really admire that because I think the whole purpose of this show too is to have those conversations about difficult topics and the work that we're doing, but show that it's not all doom and gloom and it's not all scary. Right. Um, so I'm wondering, what are you what are you hopeful for moving forward? <laughs> well, I, I will say I'm a very positive and optimistic person, so that definitely helps just in general. But I am so hopeful that the current generations, no matter which generation you're talking about, just have a little bit more empathy with the other generations. And like you said, it's really easy to point fingers, um, but but really, I'm hopeful that that more people open themselves up to the human process of, <laughs> you know, trial and error and learning from our mistakes. And I see a lot of this already happening, especially within my own community. We're currently trying to ban plastic bags in my community. And um, it's taken a lot. But regardless, we learn from our mistakes and we move forward. And keeping that positivity and that humility throughout the entire process is probably the most key function of working through some of this. Um, so, so yes, I'm very hopeful that that people will become more optimistic uh, and and more humbled to the presence of others. And again, I really appreciate being on this podcast because I'm able to speak in a humble way about some of the the really cool things that have happened in my life and hope to inspire in, in others so they can be hopeful in moving forward as well. Yeah. So 
you know, speaking from a millennial perspective, you know, to our listeners, maybe no more throwing out okay boomers in a shady way (laughs) and and saying, you know, okay, boomer, you can come and learn from me and we're in this together. And then from the other side of it with the boomer generation, you know, we aren't spending all of our money on avocado toast. We're trying. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We, We have to find that common ground. And I think we're working towards it. There's definitely still work that needs to be done, but I guarantee you know, there is not an abundance of avocado toast in my apartment. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so this last one is more of a two-part question. Mm-hmm. Um, starting with, what is the best advice that you've ever been given? You know, that is honestly a really hard question to answer because I've received so much advice throughout my entire life. And maybe, you know, part of that is just being open to receiving advice in the first place um, is such a great step. And that kind of ties into the being humble and exercising humility in certain situations. So the best advice I've ever been given is to receive advice, use it in a positive manner and, and use it for good as well. Um, And it kind of makes me think of, of a quote, right, um, is by Vincent Van Gogh, actually, and it's, normality is a paved road. It's comfortable to walk, but no flowers grow on it. And the way that I think about this is, you know, I've had a lot of really cool experiences in my life. I want to keep adding to my, my memory book, but if I didn't take advice throughout all of those, I would have walked a very comfortable road in my own mind. And some of those flowers that are kind of referred to in the quote are, are pieces of advice from others that give me a new aspect to look at or give me a new frame of focus to see the world in. So I'm, I'm really fortunate to have that. And I, I really do advise others to stay open to advice and cherish what it is. Wow. I, I really love that. I, I have not heard that quote, but I appreciate you sharing it with us because I feel like I'm going to take that and use that in my own mantras throughout my day. Um, If I'm ever, you know, I feel like it always takes work to find comfort in the uncomfortable and always pushing yourself to try new things and do the things that scare you. Absolutely. Um, So the part two of this question, I think, you know, sometimes they can go hand in hand with the best advice you've ever been given. And, Mm. um, because we have a lot of folks that are listening to this show and, and, you know, I look to you to share your expertise. Uh, what advice do you have for our listeners as we all move forward? Oh man. Well, I'm, I'm just going to assume that I'm addressing a wide variety of, of age groups here. And yes, you're correct. <laughs> so <laughs> I won't tap into one specific thing. Um, I think, you know, from a high level view, just general life advice. Um, I really think that seeking positivity will reward you with positivity. And conversely, seeking negativity will reward you negatively. Um, All of this kind of ties in to the idea that living a good life is not just tied to a single outlet, which can provide you with a positive or a negative reward. So, My advice is for everyone to try to diversify their life as much as possible. Don't focus on one thing for too long, but similarly, don't dish out all of your attention to things that may not reward you. Be very precise with what gets your attention and really put in the love and care that you would put into, you know, a hobby or a passion. Um, really just staying open to the idea of being open to ideas. I know that sounds kind of cliche maybe, but, but just opening yourself to the world can have such positive benefits. And I highly encourage everyone to take that little piece of advice and scale it to whatever it, it may be for you, whether it's, you know, embarking on a three month quest, backpacking through New Zealand, or simply just trying a new food for dinner. Um, diversifying and appreciation are are two key aspects of my life and I really think that more people could benefit from those two aspects 
Well, Lance, I am so grateful for you taking the time to chat with me today. This was an absolute pleasure and a really beautiful conversation. And I look forward to following along with your adventures and continuing to work together toward a healthy ocean and a healthy planet. Thanks for having me, Jenna. It was great to dive into some of these topics and I'm really glad I got to share them with you. And I'd also like to thank the listeners. So if you enjoyed what you heard today and are interested in hearing more of this show and others like it, you can find the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Rates, likes, and reviews are always welcome. You can find us on social media on Twitter at Coastal News 365 and Facebook. We are Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And you can connect with me individually on Twitter. It's at Yenna Benna. It's Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. And Instagram, it's the same thing, but Yenna has three N's in it. Um, So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines.